Father in heaven, help us to hear your words. Help us to not be deceived and merely hear, but hear in such a way where we desire to live them out. You've promised that when your words are unfolded, there is light that goes out, and we pray that that light would illuminate our minds and help us to see Christ more. We pray, Lord, that your words would make us have great understanding. We thank you for this privilege to hear your word taught. I pray for help, humility, and grace to speak it, and I pray for those listening that they would receive it well by your Spirit. Father, we do love you, and we thank you for your Son, Christ, who is still living now and proclaims words every time your word is read. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are you good at knowing when someone else is lying to you? Take a quick stock of your your life. Are you pretty good at knowing when someone else is lying to you? This is why the lie detector test was invented, the polygraph. The first polygraph was created 100 years ago in 1921 when a California-based policeman and physiologist, John A. Larson, devised an apparatus to simultaneously measure continuous changes in blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration rate in order to aid in the detection of deception. And the accuracy rate, some would say the accuracy rate of a polygraph, a lie detector, is above 90% when done effectively. And that's key because the critics would say, no, the test is only 70% effective. Well, they're still in use today, And that makes sense because as human beings, part of what it means to be made in God's image is we crave truth. We want to know the truth, except when it would indict us, and then we want to hide it. But we want the truth. We seek it out because we're made in the image of God. But in our fallen world, so often we must extend truth and trust to others before we even know if they're telling us the truth. We don't want to be gullible, but we also can't entirely eliminate the risks of believing others. So what are we to do? We can't control others in our family, our spouse, our our workplace, fellow employees. We can't control others, but Christians ought to be refreshing in how they speak. We ought to have integrity of speech. People ought to enjoy being around a Christian because they can be at ease. They can trust what a Christian is saying. A Christian speaks with truthfulness. And that, that very idea, speaking with truthfulness, is what Jesus is taking aim at today in our passage. So I want to invite you, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible today, there should be a Bible under the seat in front of you. And this is on page 810. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount today. Just a slice of it. And the Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. It's a a time where Jesus is telling his followers, here's what it looks like to live out 
kingdom heavenly realities as you sojourn on earth. It's not so much about ethnicity of just being a Jew. It's more about an ethic of living this way. This is how you're going to show people you are my people. Jesus, in one sense, is defining anew the people of God through the Sermon on the Mount, those who will hear and obey. And Jesus is showing us here things about our speech. We're going to parachute in here to verse 33. So we're going to look at Matthew 5, 33 through 37. 33 through 37. And before I begin reading, one other comment. It's going to sound weird to begin the scripture reading by saying, again, you have heard that it was said. Jesus has been saying that. He's about to say it for the sixth time later. He's in a series of teaching about the law. So he's going to make a statement Again, you have heard it was said, and then he's going to talk about the law. So hang tight. If this is new to you or you're new to Christianity or you're visiting, hang tight. And by the end of of looking at this passage, hopefully you'll see why Jesus is talking the way he's talking here. But let's read together. Look with me. Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Amen. Jesus is highly esteeming truthfulness here, and he's doing that by teaching about oaths. That's probably not a word that you throw around much, the word oath. It seems kind of archaic from the Middle Ages. But Jesus is teaching us about oaths today, And our goal is to take what he's taught about oaths in the first century and apply it to our lives today in the year 2021 and forever many days the Lord gives you on this earth. Here, Jesus is giving instruction on our speech, what comes out of our mouth. And the immediate effect of his teaching here would be to change the way Christians talk at home, at public, in the marketplace, He wants to affect the way they dialogue with one another, the way they make promises. Jesus' words here are supposed to change your words now, today. Jesus wants full integrity of speech among one another. The world might not have integrity of speech, but Christians, we understand Christians are to always have integrity of speech. Pay close attention to Christ's words today. Not just so that you can talk a little bit better, be known to be a little bit more truthful, but pay attention because if you don't pay attention to living this way, you have to be aware that maybe your soul is in danger. Let's look and see what Jesus is is talking about here. Our study today is going to revolve around three questions. Three questions, they're very short. We want to answer each one of these. Three questions today. Number one, what is an oath? 
What is an oath? Number two, are they biblical? Are they biblical? And then number three, why is Jesus teaching about them? What is an oath? Are they biblical? Why is Jesus teaching about them? Understanding the answers to these three questions will help increase the integrity of our speech. So first, what is an oath? What is an oath? You might define an oath this way. An oath involved invoking God's name or substitutes for it to guarantee the truth of one's statements. So it's a solemn promise invoking divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior or the truthfulness of a statement. You know how when young kids in grade school, what happens when one pinky matches up with another kid's pinky and they lock pinkies? What do they say? I pinky promise or I pinky swear. But what happens when one of the kids has their fingers crossed, maybe behind their back? It supposedly invalidates that pinky promise. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Oaths, promises, vows, solemn pledge, I I swear something. That's what an oath is. And this question of what is an oath, it arises from our text. We have to know what they are to, to move forward in this passage. And I want to show you that. Put your eyes on verse 33. You see how it says there, you shall not swear falsely? Well, the word swear in the original language is actually the word oath. You shall not break your oath. And in English we write, you shall not swear falsely. Originally, you shall not break your oath. But to swear an oath, these are synonyms. We're not talking about swearing like somebody might swear on the golf course or you might be tuning into a professional sporting event and the athletes are, are swearing cuss words. We're talking about swearing promises. Verse 33 says, you shall not swear falsely. You shall not break an oath. And then if you keep looking at verse 33, when it says, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, it literally says you shall perform what you have oathed. So just see these as synonyms. Don't get too caught up on what's the nuance between a vow and oath. They're synonyms. An oath can be declared, sworn, promised. They're all interchangeable descriptors. But that brings us to the second question. Are they biblical? That's what an oath is, but are they biblical? Yes, oaths are biblical. When taken appropriately. That's the answer. Yes, oaths are biblical when taken appropriately. The Bible even expects them in certain instances. They're mentioned in several places. Before I turn to any scriptures, and you don't have to turn with me because I'm going to bounce around, just pause. Can you think of any place in the Old Testament where somebody would swear an oath or take a vow? Let me give you a few examples. Leviticus 19.12 shows us that swearing falsely was parallel with profaning the name of the Lord. And that's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, which would include 
cussing if you say his name, but it would also include breaking an oath, taking his name in vain. But oaths were serious. In the Old Testament, you might want to jot down Numbers 30, verse 2. It says this, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. We learn a little bit more about oaths and vows from Deuteronomy. Have you ever heard Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23 mentioned? Have you ever read that as you read through the Old Testament? It teaches us that oaths were actually voluntary. It says this, it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And we could go on and look at Ecclesiastes 5 when it says, Don't be hasty to take a vow in the Lord's presence. Or Proverbs 20, 25, that it's rash and unwise to, to reflect only after making a vow. You're supposed to think beforehand. Or Psalm 15, 4, one who is blameless and upright speaks truth in their heart and swears to their own hurt and does not change. I love Psalm 76, 11. It says, make your vows to the Lord, your God, and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Vows and oaths and pledges and, and swearing to the Lord's name occurs all over the Old Testament. There's bad examples of it, like Jephthah in the book of Judges. There's good examples, like Hannah in the book of First Samuel. Therefore, there is overwhelming evidence in the Old Testament that oaths or these solemn promises given in the Lord's name are okay in the appropriate context. They're not just for everyday talk, everyday speech. But is that just an Old Testament thing? What about the New Testament? Let's pause again. Can you think of any New Testament example where an oath is given, taken, received, Anybody want to put a hand up? I'm not going to call on you. But I do want you to participate this morning. You participate with your mind and heart as these words are going forth. So I want you to really think about that. Are there any oaths in the New Testament? If you can't think of any, I want you to listen really, really closely to what I'm about to say. First Thessalonians 5.27 the Apostle Paul says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Imagine if I came to you this morning, and we live back in the first century, and I read some words of Scripture, and then I said, I put you all under oath that you must make sure that every member of this church hears this and reads this. That's the, the weight, the seriousness of what Paul just did there in the Thessalonian church. I wonder if you ever noticed that when you've read through the New Testament. 
I wonder if you ever noticed in the book of Acts when it said that Paul had to cut his hair because he was under a vow, most likely the Nazarite vow, the vow of the Nazarene. I wonder if you noticed Acts 20, Acts 2, verse 30, excuse me. In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, he even mentioned God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set a descendant of David on his throne. I wonder if you've ever noticed Hebrews chapter 6. Have you ever heard Hebrews 6 before? Yeah, it was read today. Alex read for us Hebrews 6 where God swears by himself to keep his word. There's no one greater by whom he might swear by. There's no other divine name more holy than his. He swears by his own name. He guarantees his word with an oath. And I wonder if you've ever noticed Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 63, when he's about to be crucified. Before that, he's under trial with the high priest. And Caiaphas, the high priest, puts an oath upon himself, Caiaphas, and he says, I adjure you by the living God. That's code word for I just made an oath. I just made a promise. I adjure you by the living God. He, t- he invokes God's name. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus doesn't refuse to answer because oaths aren't valid. Jesus appreciates the fact that finally he's going to invoke God's name and he wants to know the truth. And Jesus says, you have said so. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. So even Jesus in the New Testament doesn't run away from an oath that's happening when it happens in the right context. Even he affirms it, that they can be right. So therefore, we've seen in the Old Testament and the New Testament, yes, oaths are biblical in the right context. So if oaths are, are biblical in the right context and appropriate in the right way, if they're meant to guarantee the truthfulness of one's statements, then why is Jesus teaching about them here in our passage today, and what are we supposed to do about this? Well, this brings us to that third question. Why is Jesus teaching about oaths? I thought Christians are always supposed to tell the truth. So why does it matter whether we take an oath or not? Well, let's take a look at this. Put your eyes back down on our passage. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Why is Jesus saying that? Have you ever heard somebody say, You remember the good old days when a man's word was his bond, and just at a handshake the deal is struck, and I can trust him? That only goes so far as the character of the man you're talking to. At no time in our culture has every man had such impeccable, stellar character that you can always trust a handshake. You can only say that to one who you do trust and they keep your trust. The moment they break your trust, you're not going to strike a handshake deal with that man again. And that kind of wicked, I can't trust you culture was what Jesus was speaking to in our passage today. Here's why Jesus is teaching about oaths. Flip over just a few chapters to Matthew 23. You've got to see this. Rather than me trying to speculate and guess at what the first century culture was like, 
I want you to hear a few verses that pinpoint exactly what the first century was like when it came to oaths. Go to Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. So it's the same book of the Bible, Matthew chapter 23. We'll start in verse 16, and we'll just read a few verses here. Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides! who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Wow. That's the first century air that you would be breathing. That's the false teaching that you would be hearing in synagogues, the temple complex, and elsewhere. The Pharisees had this complex hierarchy of what's a valid oath, what's a valid way of swearing, and what's a loophole that you could get out of it and not have to keep your word. What's a way that you could promise someone something, but you're not actually invoking God's name or something holy, so... If it falls apart and doesn't happen, you're off the hook. There's no judgment for you. God's not offended. You haven't used his name. The Pharisees thought long and hard and came up with a wicked system. They made material ranking, gold of the temple, gifts of the altar. Their eyes were fixated on material goods. Jesus calls them out. And his followers, when they hear him call them out at what we just read, they would have hearkened back to what we were reading earlier, Matthew 5. When before he rebuked the Pharisees, he had already told all of them, don't don't take oaths at all. Don't, Don't swear by heaven, for it's the throne of God. Don't swear by earth, for it's his footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem, which, by the way, in the original language, it it says toward Jerusalem. In other words, don't, don't swear in the direction of Jerusalem as if that's, that's a magical way to make your promise happen. And did you notice why Jesus is teaching this way? Look again at our text in Matthew 5. Look again. Look at how verse 34, 35 have something in common. Put your eyes there. What do you think is in common between all the things mentioned in 34 through 35? Don't take an oath by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem. What happens at at the second half of each of these phrases? He says, throne of God, God's footstool, city of the great king. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's saying God is sovereignly involved even if you don't name him directly. Hello? He's turning on the lights. If you're going to pick anything in creation... Know that there's a creator. 
God's not aloof and detached and distant from what's happening on the earth. So don't start swearing by things thinking you've kept God out of it. And then did you see verse 36? If somebody were to counteract Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I'm not going to swear by other things. I'll, I'll just swear on my own head. He says, and don't take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, God is sovereignly in control of all things. You can't even control your natural hair color. I'm looking out right now. I see many different hair colors at this moment. Some are natural. Some I don't know if they're, if they're natural or not. But here's a common denominator for us all. Did you choose your hair color at birth? You should be shaking your head right now. Did you choose, those of you who are old enough to know, did you choose when some of those first hairs would begin to turn a lighter shade? Gray, white. Did you choose when that would happen? And some of you are thinking, I hope he doesn't go there. Did you choose when some hair would be missing? You don't have to be ashamed if you have less hair than you once did. God's sovereignly in control of that. God is showing here, by this passage, you cannot even control your natural hair color, what's happening with your hair naturally. Sure, you can manipulate it unnaturally. But Jesus is making the point, don't swear by other things. Don't try to act like you're in control of anything. I am the one in control. I am the only name by which you would ever take an oath and swear something by. Only my reverent, holy name. Jesus' teaching is powerful here. It actually fits hand in glove with something like James 4, that, that we don't know the future. We can't boast about tomorrow. In fact, the whole book of James, James 3, talks about our words and our speech, and James 5 quotes directly Matthew 5 when he says, don't take an oath at all, in chapter 5 of James 5. And you might be thinking today, okay, wait a minute. I don't use the word oath very often. I don't take oaths very often. I don't think Jesus has much for me today. But I hope to show you what the Lord showed me, and it, it hurt a little bit. The Lord's been showing me this week all the ways that I don't sync up well with, with the teaching here. I want to help you see that too. For example... Have you ever borrowed someone's cell phone charger and said, I promise I'll give that back? Have you ever been out to eat with someone or, or been in someone's home and, and somehow the phrase has crossed your mind, I promise you, you'll love this. Taste it, try it. I promise you'll love it. Those are some of the few times I've heard myself say, I promise. But I still kept thinking, okay, Lord, for those of us listening and, and encountering your word today, if the word promise doesn't show up on our lips very much, how do we apply this? Why are you teaching us about this? This seems like a first century problem. But you know what Jesus is trying to tell us today? You are supposed to keep your word as if it's a solemn oath, even if you never promise. Because of what he says there in verse 37. Did you see it? If you're wondering, okay, I guess I just don't take oaths and I'm fine, Jesus then gives us the application today that is just as relevant then as it is now. It's verse 37. 
This is how Jesus wants you to live today. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply what? Yes or no? Yes or no? Let what you say be simply yes or no. When you say to someone often, I promise I'll be at your ball game. I promise I'll be there on time. I promise I'll be at that concert, music concert for you. I promise I'll buy you tickets this time, whether you're a grandparent, parent, friend, peer. Have you noticed that if you are quick to make a lot of promises, you're actually cheapening, eroding the trust someone would have in your everyday speech? Because think about it. If your promise comes true, they think, oh, wow, he keeps his word, she keeps her word, but only when she promises. And if she's not promising me, if he's not promising me, it might not come true. Husbands, wives, you know this. Have you ever had an argument? I've been on the wrong end and, and been at fault. An argument where you, you find yourself making an excuse, but I didn't promise we would do that. I just said we, we should and we will and we're going to, but I didn't promise we would. I didn't use the word promise. You can't hold me accountable to what I've said. I didn't promise it. If we can't hold others accountable to what they've said, how are we going to have relational trust, that currency, that oil in the motor that makes marriages run, families run? If you're a boss and you have employees around you, don't you want all your employees to be truthful? Society, families, office places, they would fall apart without true speech. So what Jesus is doing here is he was wanting plain, simple speech among his followers. And they would sound radically different in the first century if they stopped swearing by, by the temple and heaven and earth and by their own head. They may be thinking, well, how am I going to get somebody to trust me? Do what you say. Follow through with what you say. People will start to trust you. Jesus' words are powerful here. We all want relational capital with those we love and people we meet. And we can be tempted to try to get more relational capital, more good standing with them, sooner than we have time to build it by making promises. Beware of that. It pains me to think that some of you can, can recall family members or coworkers right now that they write so many verbal checks of what they're going to do for you or this or that, the bank is bankrupt. You can't trust what they're saying to you. You can't take that check to the bank and cash it because they've spread themselves thin. Jesus wants us to make our yes be yes and our no be no. So whether you're single, married, widowed, in school, out of school, one of the things you can do to obey Jesus' teaching here is to be careful with your words. I love Philippians 4.8 when it says to think about whatever is true, noble, trustworthy, commendable, worthy of praise. That should be a good filter for whether we're about to promise someone something. Is it, is it true? Is it commendable? Is it lovely? Is it excellence? Do I need to invoke a promise here or can I just say I plan to do that? I would argue there's only a few occasions in life where you need to make solemn promises. Maybe it's the courtroom when you're under oath. 
You don't want to have perjury. Maybe it's a wedding like we saw yesterday with Kyle and Ariel. It was fitting. It was right, godly, and good for them to make vows and promises to one another in the name of the Lord that they would be faithful in their covenant of marriage. There are times when vows are good. Pledges and swearing and oaths are good. But if you don't have everyday integrity of speech, it's going to cheapen everything else. If you try to supplement that with making promises all the time, you're actually undoing what you're trying to build. I want to thank those who are keeping their word. There's so many of you that you tell me you're going to do something, and I don't even think twice. It just it gets done. It happens. I hope to God that we continue that. I hope that when you see your pastors, your deacons, your Sunday school teachers, your children's ministry leaders, your parents, your friends, I hope as a church it's just an echo chamber of truthfulness. The benefit of being able to trust what someone says is so sweet. It's so sweet. We don't have to take time this morning to talk about the ways we've experienced pain from broken vows. There's no irony, by the way, that Jesus is talking about this right after teaching about divorce a few verses earlier. Perhaps the most painful way someone could break their word. So let's close our time this morning pivoting all this towards the gospel and we'll be done. If you are thinking in this moment, okay, I'm going to try to speak a little bit better. I'm going to try to tell the truth more. I'm going to mean what I say. I'm going to be slow to speak, quick to listen. You might be in danger of moralism. You might be in danger of doing what we're all prone to do, and that's self-betterment. I'm just going to speak good for me. Remember, Jesus is giving this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a kingdom manifesto. He's saying this is how Christians live. This is not just to help you in your career so that people pat you on the back. Yeah, he's a truthful guy so you can climb a corporate ladder. This is not just so that your kids will praise you, parents and grandparents. This is for the glory of God. If we could do this perfectly, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross later in the Gospel of Matthew. He knows that we are going to need the Holy Spirit to fuel us to live this way because we've all blown it. We've all said things that we didn't mean. We've all been afraid to give someone our no because when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, we think, let me take the no off the table. I can't tell people no. That would offend them. I don't know how the Lord's convicting you today to let your yes be yes and your no be no, but I know that if you're going to live this out, you need the Holy Spirit to help you to guide you, to empower you. And the Holy Spirit's only going to help you if you are united to Christ, the perfect one. Jesus never sinned with his lips. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He never told a lie. As he taught us in John chapter 8, Satan is the father of lies, and he speaks out of his own character. And Jesus knows if we begin to lie and not let our yes be yes, we're actually imaging Satan in that moment. We want to always be imaging our Heavenly Father. We don't want to be acting like the Father of lies. And Jesus came and taught about this, but he also came and died for this because he knows we don't live it out perfectly. We know that Jesus, when he was on the cross, do you remember the three words he said that if they are true, which they are, are incredibly powerful. You remember the three words he said? It is 
finished. He died in your place, and you can bank on it that he paid the full penalty of sin. He died in your place because your mouth is enough to condemn you to hell for not always telling the truth. You have misrepresented your father who has no unblemish track record of telling lies. God always tells the truth. He would punish you for not always telling the truth. But Christ steps in, goes to the cross, sheds his blood, and then you know what? A lot of people heaped on mockery and and lies. They said, God didn't keep his word. Look, the Messiah just died. And maybe if you've gone through a tragedy in your life, you may be doubting God's word that he, maybe God does lie. Maybe he doesn't love me. But you know what proved everything? In this span of the cross and then that strange period where it might look like he lied, then the resurrection happens. And he proves that he's true. If you ever feel like God has lied to you, just give him a little bit more time. You haven't given it enough time. He's going to prove himself true. He always has. He always will. And he raises his son from the grave to prove his sacrifice. And now he invites all of us, men and women, if we know ourselves to be sinners separated from God, all it takes is trusting Jesus at his word, putting our faith on him, turning away from our sin the way we speak, trusting in him, and being forgiven and cleansed. That's then how we're made right with the Father. If you're not a believer today and you just happen to visit us and you're listening, I don't want you to leave this place thinking, just try harder to tell the truth. I'm asking you, what are you going to do about all the times when you haven't told the truth already? How are you going to be clean before God then? The gospel will clean your past, it'll fuel your present, and it'll enable you to move forward in the future. Let's strive to live out these words. We began today asking the question, if you're good at knowing when someone's lying to you, let's flip that around. Are you good at knowing when someone's telling you the truth? Then what about when you hear the words of Jesus? Let's pray.